Hi everyone and welcome back to Nobody Knows, the self-help podcast dedicated to the ones who are still trying to figure it all out. In last episode, I highlighted how I want this podcast to feel like a community and that I don't want to be the only one contributing. Nobody Knows is about working through problems we experience growing up and that means if we're all going through it, there are going to be a million and one solutions on how to get through. So the more options, the better. And with that, I had asked listeners if they felt inclined to share a time in their lives when they had no idea what they were doing so that then we can share those experiences on here. We can relate, give each other advice, just help each other navigate this process. And let me tell you, you all definitely showed up. I was afraid no one was going to submit anything, but you were all so forthcoming and very generous and vulnerable to share your experiences. So I just want to say a very big thank you. I'm very grateful to have received your responses and I'm really looking forward to sharing these submissions each episode. Also, if any of you have any ideas, we need to figure out what to call this segment. I want it to be kind of like a cutesy title, but I haven't really thought of anything clever. So if you have something in mind on what to call this submission relating to each other's growing up experiences, adulting, navigating life, essentially, let me know what we should call it. Reach out to me on socials at Nobody Knows Podcast on Instagram or at Nobody Knows Podcast followed by an underscore on TikTok. Or if you're listening on Spotify, you can answer in the Q&A section. So let's kick it off. Our first submission is from Georgia and she wrote, I have changed jobs four times in the last year and a half. I have left two very toxic relationships and I'm now trying to navigate living on my own and figuring out where to go from here. That's a lot. That's a lot of change for a short amount of time. And we actually touched on this in the last episode where we discussed the topic of transition and major life changes. And I feel like you're definitely in that space right now. I'm hoping that all of these changes for you like just happened like all together, amalgamated all at once so that now you can rest and like let things even out. I feel like that happens a lot in life, like when it rains, it pours. And typically with me, a lot of things will happen all at once and it'll be very, very overwhelming and you'll feel like, holy fuck, what the heck is happening in my life? But then somehow everything just settles out. Changing jobs, I think, is good these days. Back in like the boomer era, obviously it wasn't that great to to consistently change jobs because the career ladder was different. I mean, I could also argue that it just wasn't great in general for women working a job back then, but that's obviously like a separate conversation. But it was definitely more logical to stay at the job you're currently at for a while as it ultimately led to a promotion. Again, most likely if you were male and white. And these days, that's just not true. There's so many other ways you can get ahead. Like sure, if you stay at the job long enough, you'll get a promotion. But our culture is also so much more focused on living a life versus, you know, girl passing too close to the sun. There are way more people nowadays that just have a job to keep the lights on, pay the bills. And so if that takes you four, five, six, 100 job changes until you're content, like more power to you. And also kudos to you for leaving two very toxic relationships. I think that that's hard to do just in an isolated event. The fact that you took, I am assuming, some knowledge from the first very toxic relationship and and applied those learnings in your second relationship and still advocated for yourself, like that deserves a round of applause because, again, that's just incredibly difficult to, to go through. And speaking of hard things, today's episode guest has proven time and time again that she's capable of the most daunting challenges. Tatiana Frost is on the episode today and she is a mental health case manager, advocate, writer, and content creator on her Instagram account called at having bipolar. There she shares her experiences and lessons learned throughout her mental health journey. Tatiana is living with bipolar disorder type 1 and has recently published a self-help journal for the sole purpose of those with bipolar to gain a deeper personal insight. She's also just started a support group to serve as an online resource and continue the mental health conversation. 
In our discussion today, Tatiana shares her experiences being diagnosed bipolar and how her family and peers reacted to this. In addition, how her life has since shifted. And we also talk about her work in the mental health sphere and how there are still so many of us that one, don't have the resources and two, nor the capabilities to seek proper mental health treatment and professional help. This episode is for anyone who wants to learn more about bipolar, Previous to our conversation, I didn't have too much insight into bipolar disorders, so talking with Tatiana today was incredibly interesting and super educational. This episode is also for anyone who's currently struggling to find support or for those that are looking to honor their mental health and are looking for additional ways on how to live a fulfilled life. Before we hop into the discussion with Tatiana, I do want to give a trigger warning. If you are uncomfortable with the topics of potential suicide or suicide, then this episode is not suited for you. I would highly recommend tuning into any other episodes of Nobody Knows that you might not have heard yet or skipping this week and tuning in next time. Thank you so much, Tatiana, for joining us today on Nobody Knows. I am really looking forward to this conversation with you today. You know, we're going to talk about navigating our mental health, um, talk about your bipolar diagnosis, talk about just growing up in university, college, navigating pressures from peers or parents. Um, I think a really great mental health conversation all around. If we can start at the beginning, can you share your story of being diagnosed with bipolar and furthermore, your experience navigating this time? Yeah. So I was diagnosed with bipolar when I was 17. I had experienced depression from as early as 10. And I think I kind of just thought everybody lived life that way. And that was normal. Um, so it never raised any red flags because I was like, oh, life's just hard. I'm, I'm a teenager, like whatever. But then when I was about 16, 17, I started experiencing the other end of bipolar disorder. And so bipolar disorder is marked by um, fluctuations and mood episodically. And so there's two types of bipolar, bipolar one and bipolar two. I have bipolar one. And what that means is that I experience mania and depression. Bipolar two is a little bit different. Um, they experience hypomania and depression. And so for me, my mania can be super productive and super uplifting and make me really confident and help me get a lot of stuff done in the beginning. But as it progresses and becomes more intense, I can start experiencing psychosis and I'll hear things that aren't there or I'll have these delusions that things are happening that aren't. Um, and so when I was first diagnosed, I noticed something was wrong when I started experiencing the mania because all of a sudden I was going between feeling like crap, which is normal, and then not feeling like crap, and then going back to feeling like crap without any obvious triggers or anything that I could identify with setting off my moods, per se. And so I knew that something was wrong. And of course, you know, like everyone, I played Dr. Google and I went on the internet and was like, what's wrong with me? Tell me, give me answers, um, which I don't recommend. Don't do that. But um, I started to recognize that, oh, maybe some of these things I'm experiencing aren't normal. And while I don't advocate for self-diagnosing, I do advocate for educating yourself because I think it allows you to advocate for your needs much better. And my biggest need was that I needed a professional to talk to about what was going on because I wasn't sure. My family, especially at the time, and I think in a way still does have a lot of stigma around mental health. And so I didn't have the best relationship with either one of my parents. I didn't really feel like I could go to them with this. And so before I went to my parents about what I was struggling with, I actually made an appointment at the mental health center near my house. And I went in that day at 9am and I was super fucking nervous because it's, it's very intimidating. It's very scary to go in, especially alone and yeah. I went up to the desk and I told them, okay, hi, I'm who I am. I have an appointment. And they asked for my insurance card. And I was like, I was 17. I didn't have my insurance card. And I didn't want them to have my insurance because then my parents would get the right. bill. And I wasn't ready for them to know that. And so I was already really, really anxious and really 
um, distress just kind of being there because it was the first time I think I was outwardly acknowledging to someone besides myself that, oh, I'm not okay. Like something's wrong with what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so I think they could tell that I was pretty unhappy. And so they said, well, you know, we can't give you an evaluation without an insurance card, but what we can do is we can have you talk to a nurse. And so I was like, okay, thank you. And I went back and I spoke with this nurse and I had a breakdown telling her everything that was going on. I was going from these horrible depressions to this mania that was keeping me up at night and causing me to start thinking and feeling things that were really abnormal for me. And I was feeling so confused and I was exhausted because it's exhausting to go between one extreme to the other back and forth all the time as your norm. And her response was something along the lines of, you know, go seek therapy, get on a mood stabilizer. And while that was helpful, it also was like, shit, now I know something's wrong with me. Because this doctor, this nurse, who's I'm telling these very brief things to suggesting that this it's confirming my worst fear, essentially. And so a couple weeks later, I had built up the courage. It was, it was probably like 10 p.m., And I had spent the whole day kind of, or the last two weeks really preparing mentally to have this conversation with my mom about, hey, I'm not doing well. Like, I think I need some professional help. And I had been in therapy before when I was a kid. And so Mm -hmm. while I was really nervous about the vulnerability of it, I was optimistic that she'd be like, okay, therapy, fine. Um, But her response was essentially, you have low iron, you're just lonely, you're not bipolar, that's a real disorder, you don't have that which was really, really not what you wanted to hear after already being so scared to even open up about it in the first place. And so at that point, I kind of accepted, okay, they're not going to help with this. I'll just figure it out on my own. I knew that I didn't want to keep living like this. So I need to do what I need to do. So I went on psychology today. I reached out to therapists. I was able to connect with one therapist. And she was like, I have all the paperwork. I know you said that your parents aren't really involved, but if you can have them sign it to consent since I was a minor, then we can be all set to do sessions. I was like, okay, that's fine. That's easy. I can, I can pick up paperwork and have my mom sign it. So I got it. I brought it home. And then the paperwork just kind of sat on the counter for like weeks while I was like, Hey mom, you're going to sign it. And it never happened. And so at that point, I was at a place where I really knew I needed professional help, but all the ways I was trying to get it weren't working because mm-hmm. the people who were supposed to be supporting me weren't really supporting me. And so I ended up getting into therapy because I had a horrible breakdown at school and I like reached my limit and I went to our counselor and I was in therapy for probably maybe six months or so um, before the summertime came and I came to a point where my moods weren't getting better I was still unmedicated therapy was what it was Mm -hmm. but it wasn't actually making what I was experiencing any less or any more manageable and I was getting to a point where I was like if I keep living this way I'm going to kill myself and I don't want to die I just don't want to live this way I think I had talked to my best friend about the idea of going to the hospital before but I really hadn't talked to anybody else about it. And it was kind of just like a worst case scenario. Maybe I'll do this if I have the guts type of thing. And I had the guts because I drove to the ER and told them, hey, I'm going to kill myself. They were able to get me in. And I was in the hospital, I think, inpatient for like a few weeks and then outpatient for another couple weeks. Um, and at the end of that treatment time, I was diagnosed bipolar. And honestly, it made a lot of sense, but it was also really scary. As much as you may like see something coming, when it happens, it still sucks. Like you can see that car is barreling towards you and you're going to get hit by a car, but it doesn't make the impact any less when you get hit by the car. And so I knew the diagnosis was coming for months. I couldn't, I wasn't even at a point like I would talk about it in therapy and we wouldn't say the B word 
mm-hmm. um, because I just I was so uncomfortable with the fact that like something was wrong enough with me that I had to go to the hospital. It felt super shameful and super guilty. I think partially just because of the way mental health was never ever talked about in my family, and I mm-hmm. had a lot of self stigma and shame about it. Um, and it took me a long time to come to a place where I'm comfortable with my diagnosis. And there are still times where I'm really not. Um, but the hardest part was just recognizing that oh, I have to change. I have to make lifestyle changes. There are things yeah. in my life that I can't do the same way that I used to anymore. And that's really, really, really hard to accept. Um, and honestly, there are things about that that I'm still learning and I'm still having to accept. You know, like there are certain jobs I can't do them. I just can't. I have, I'm starting to recognize my limitations when it comes to my mental health and it sucks and it makes me feel ashamed. But I also know that if I don't prioritize these things in my life, other things will fall behind. First off, thank you for sharing like your story and how you have come to today and with your bipolar diagnosis. Cause all of those points that you touched on of like one, not having support from your family to recognizing that you were literally going to kill yourself if you continue to live that way and seeking help. Like those are such one vulnerable things to admit as well as experience and, and then overcome too. Right. So first off, just want to say thank you for sharing that. You touched a little bit on how it felt when you were diagnosed, but what were the actual thoughts going through your mind and how did you set yourself up to continue pushing forward? Yeah, I mean, the thoughts going through my mind were mostly like, I'm crazy. There's something wrong with me. I'm not normal. I'm broken. I'll never be better. My life is ruined essentially. And I really didn't know a lot about bipolar until I started thinking that maybe there was something wrong. And one of the tricky things that I learned now that I work in mental health is that there's a very big difference between looking up a mental illness and reading the diagnostic criteria and then actually understanding what it is and how it impacts someone. And so one of the things that most healthcare providers will tell you is don't look up your diagnosis. Um, because people get paid not to be able to look it up and read the criteria, but to be able to look it up and know how that applies to you. I think I had a lot of shame about it because a lot of times when you look up these illnesses, you see the bad stuff. You see it's so hard because you see the things that are in films and TV and movies. And when I was first diagnosed, I was in a place where it was so new and I became really enveloped in it um, because I've always been the type of person that I feel like I, I can manage something better if I understand it. And so I spent a lot of time doing a lot of research and digging. um, And so I watched probably every single documentary, every movie, read every article. I mean, I still keep up with the research that's going on in regards to this. Um, And some of it was pretty detrimental because some of it really emphasized like, my life is never going to be the same. And that sucks. But then other parts were very informative and actually really, I think, informed my ability to better take care of myself. And so there were two ends of the spectrum, but it was really, really hard to accept that there was something not right. And I think part of that is like, I've always, I've grown up and and I've always been a perfectionist. And so to hear that something is like wrong as a perfectionist, absolutely not. I was applying a lot of the stigma and shame that I had about mental health and who people with mental illness are to myself. And I think that was harmful. Um, But then also having a diagnosis and then seeing how other people respond and react and treat people is really tough. So certain things that came up were hearing people make comments about, oh, the weather's so bipolar, that's so bipolar. And sitting there and being like, cool, thanks. You know, and just understanding that even though I can be educated and I can reduce my stigma, it doesn't necessarily mean everybody has the same level of education. It was hard for me to face those things in the world. It was really hard to have a cool face about it sometimes. Kind of like any other thing that you keep doing over and over again, 
you get used to it. And I'm at a place now with my bipolar where I definitely still cycle. I'm medicated, but I still cycle. And I'm much more educated on it. And so the cycles aren't so bad and I have the skills and I have the resources and I have the support system to manage it. Um, and so now it's not as difficult, but one of the things that was probably the hardest for me was just acknowledging that my life will never be the same and I do have to change things and I'm still not okay with that, but I know that I have to do with this. Can you touch on or like elaborate on some of the experiences following your diagnosis? So the things that you've really noticed since being diagnosed that are completely different versus maybe there are some things that you thought might've changed, but actually stayed the same. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing, I think one of the biggest changes was just the medication. Um, Being medicated is super helpful. And, but on the other hand of that, it can be a really hard reality to accept that Medication is not a cure. It can reduce your symptoms enough to allow you to utilize the skills that you've developed in an easier way. However, it does not completely reduce the symptoms. One of the the hardest things was just the adjustment of being on meds and feeling a normal range of emotions again. That wasn't either extreme because... And it's hard, it's, I don't know if it's easy to understand if you haven't been through that, but when you're so accustomed to living life, either the highest or the lowest, that middle range is really one, hard to find. And two, you have a good day and you're like, fuck, am I manic? And you have a bad day and you think, crap, am I depressed? And there's this hypervigilance that comes with it after you're diagnosed of like, am I slipping? Am I getting sick again? What's going on? And it, takes I mean it took me a long time to kind of recognize that okay I can have a good day and I'm not in I can feel really crappy and I'm I'm not depressed I'm not having an episode um but I still have episodes I am coming off of a high now I'm entering a depression now um and that's hard because when I'm manic I take on a lot of stuff I do a lot I have a lot of energy I don't you know need as much sleep. I don't, I don't need as much rest. And so I just fill my time with everything. And then I become depressed and I'm like, Oh, why did I do that to myself? For sure. So yeah, the hardest thing for me more than anything was just learning how to live within a normal range of emotions. Um, and being able to recognize that like, it's okay to have feelings. They're not bad all of the time. I refer to it as manic and depressed are typically what are considered the two extremes of bipolar, but within there is a normal, quote unquote, normal range of emotions that everybody can fluctuate in and out of throughout a day or throughout a week. And it's normal um, to have your own mood swings throughout the day. The biggest difference that separates people who don't have a mood disorder and those who do typically is the length of time that you're feeling the emotions. So as and I'm like 90% sure I'm correct on this, but I'm pretty sure the diagnostic criteria specifically for bipolar includes a duration period. So it has to last for at least, I don't know, a week or two weeks for it to be considered a manic or depressed episode. Um, I think that's more specific with the mania than the depression. Like for instance, I could have a really shit day today, but tomorrow I could have a much better day. And that's not cycling between manic and depressed. Now, Some people do experience what's called rapid cycling. And that's a little bit different. That can change per day, per hour. I do not have rapid cycling. I typically, my episodes will last for about a month. I'll be really manic for a month and then I'll come down for it and I'll be pretty depressed for a month. And another part of the diagnosis that a lot of people don't talk about or even really are educated about are called mixed episodes. And a mixed episode is kind of when you're experiencing symptoms of of both at the same time. So you could have a lot of restlessness and racing thoughts and fast speech and a lot of ideas, but you could also be really, really exhausted and want to die. And so there can be either either one at a time or both at the same time. And neither one of them is fun. 
Um, oh. None of it is pleasant. But there can also be periods of normalcy between them. So if I'm manic for a month, there could be a few days or a week where I'm not feeling manic or depressed. I'm just kind of like free floating and almost waiting for the transition to happen. I like to call it my transitional period where I think my body's kind of coming down. And when you think about our moods, a lot of times they're represented in these curvy graphs. And so you go up, 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 up on the roller coaster. And then you get to that point on the roller coaster where you're kind of just standing there free floating for a little while. And they make you wait and the suspense builds. And then you fall down and you're like, ah, that's kind of what it's like. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's very intense. Furthermore, like the way that you explain your episodes and like your periods that you go through, you're so articulate in this. So how long did you, do you think that it took you to get to where you are today to illustrate this? I feel like at first it would be a lot for you to even understand, let alone explain to someone else. The number one thing that I did and I'm still doing it is I track my news. That really, really, really was helpful so I could understand what is happening because my moods, and I can't speak for everybody else's, but my episodes are pretty cyclical. And so they are pretty standard and they kind of happen the same way. Um, They happen for roughly the same duration. And so when I started tracking my moods, I was able to identify, oh, okay. So I was really depressed then and I was really manic. And then after a while, you can recognize a pattern. You can start to predict, okay, I'm probably heading towards the low. And then be able to adjust your treatment plan or your coping skills or whatever resources and support you're getting to support with that. Prior to your diagnosis, how did your family talk about mental health if they did at all? They really didn't. And even now, my family really doesn't like talking about it which is ironic because I've been hospitalized three times. Um, My mom's mom was a social worker. My aunt is a therapist. My family really didn't talk about it, but when they did, it wasn't talk from people who were educated about it. Um, And so something that would happen a lot is when I was living with my parents, um, I would be having just a bad day, not depressed, not manic, just not a great day. And there were times where I'd be having a bad day and my mom would say, well, you're just really manic right now. And I'd be like, no, I am allowed to have bad days that aren't mania and they're not depression. I'm allowed to have shitty days because everybody has shitty days. And so I think some of that lack of education, some of that ignorance kind of followed them in the way that maybe they understand my illness and the way they communicated what they were experiencing with it. Because a hard truth about mental health is that unless you don't talk to anybody ever, it doesn't just impact you. My mental illness 100% impacts my partner. It does impact my family because there are times where I'm struggling and I need to rely on somebody besides me. And I know that that's hard for them. And so I really echo the importance of having a support system, but also making sure your support system has a support system because there are times that I've gone through that have been really hard, not just for me, but for also for my partner. And I've really, really, really encouraged him, like, please talk to about this with somebody who's not me. Please reach out to the right. people you care about and who are there for you, because I know this is hard for you. I know it's hard to see someone you love suffer. And I know that my illness is impacting you. And I want you to be okay, just like how I want me to be okay. And so... I think it's super, super important to have a support system and to have people that you feel safe with that you can share what you're going through. But I also think that if you're going to rely on them, please have someone they can rely on too, because it's hard for everybody. Um, I'd like to think that it's an isolated event and it only impacts me, but it just doesn't. Um, And so that's something I always make sure to echo with people, especially newly diagnosed people. When your parents or your family, I should say, have a singular or like simple view of mental health and you are then diagnosed bipolar and they are probably not pulling from the most accurate resources or pulling most accurate information. How has that impacted you? Like, how do you feel about that? I I mean, I was really hurt. It kind of set this precedent that made me feel like can't rely on them. 
mm-hmm. can't ask them for help. They're yeah. not in a sense, safe people. Um, and I think that when you reach out for help and you're in the response is so invalidating and so rejecting, it does have that effect. Um, now, thankfully there are people in my family that are super supportive, um, and are really great, but, and I think this is probably true for most people. Not everybody is that way. And I don't think everybody can be that way. And after I was diagnosed, I think my mom did take some time to, she took some classes, she read some books. However, I don't think it's stuck enough for her to change some of her behaviors. And those were the hardest were the little comments, the pretty stigmatized comments. Yeah. Um, And so that's unfortunately a part of it that you have to learn how to manage and you have to understand that not everybody can be educated. Not everybody wants to be educated. And sometimes people will not be able to understand to a point where it could negatively impact you. The best thing I could do is just know that I'm educated and know that what they're saying doesn't say much about me. It says more about them. For any parents or any family members of people who live with bipolar or listening to this, if you could go back in time and change anything about your family and how they reacted to your diagnosis um, and give insights to the listeners, what would that be? Believe them. If they're saying something is wrong, believe them. Maybe it's not bipolar. Maybe it's something else. But if they're saying something's wrong, listen. Listen to them and believe them the first time. The second thing would be if they get some sort of diagnosis, whatever it may be, educate yourself. Take the time to actually learn and ask them questions. Because you can educate yourself on XYZ illness. However, every single mental health disorder impacts each person differently. We all have different experiences of mental illness. And so you can read a book on bipolar disorder and get the gist, but you will not be able to read a book and then be able to apply every single thing to that particular person. So obviously educate yourself, get the base knowledge, and then ask them questions. The last thing I would do with them is help create some sort of safety plan so that you, so that they know what their coping skills are and you know what their coping skills are. I have with my partner and with my family members a care plan. And the care plan is essentially coping skills for each episode, mania and depression. And these aren't necessarily something that would be considered helpful if you're already like in a full-blown manic or full-blown depression. However, if you feel yourself coming up to that, which is why the mood tracking can be really helpful, having those skills in place and knowing what they are. I know what my coping skills are now because I've practiced them over a long time. I still have a care plan because I'm in a really shitty mood. The last thing I'm thinking of is, oh, what are my coping skills? Mm-hmm. Um, and even if I know my coping skills, if I can't help me, if somebody else knows my coping skills, they can help me. So my partner has a copy of my care plan. And so he knows when I'm having a really hard time, there's certain things that he can help me do that can help ground me. So one of them is taking a hot shower or having a hot cup of tea if I'm feeling really, really energized and like I can't stay grounded. And so sometimes those are not things that I can bring myself to do. There were times in the past where he helped me undress, he helped me get in the shower, I got out of the shower, he wrapped me in the towel, he helped me get back dressed. Does it make you feel good? No. But is it helpful? Yes since you mentioned that you're in your early twenties and that you're just naturally going through the waves of, of growing up. Plus you're also learning more, more and more about bipolar and mental health. What are the biggest lessons that you've learned? I think the best thing that I've learned, and this is a pretty recent thing. Um, and it's something that I've only gotten good at because now I work in mental health and I have to apply it a lot to other people, but I think the best thing, and this is for you, if you're diagnosed or if you love someone who is, Meet them and meet yourself where you're at and try your best to not apply judgments. Something that I'm guilty of is wanting to rush through the process of healing and wanting to rush through the ugly parts of therapy because it sucks and it's super uncomfortable and it makes you feel like absolute garbage. And I just kind of want to like, Clean it up, wrap it in the bows, all done. Yep, I healed all my trauma. That's done. Exactly. But it doesn't work that way. And that sucks. And my first psychiatrist, 
he was talking to me about some of these things and I was like, so what I'm hearing, and I'm very A-type, like, so what I'm hearing is that I can't get an A and I can't just like take a, like there's no test to study for. Like, it's like, trust the process. What is that? Something that I've learned now as a mental health provider that I didn't know when I was first diagnosed and I think could have helped me when I was first diagnosed is being able to meet yourself where you're at. Understand that maybe I'm not in the place to do these things right now. Maybe I am not in the place to have these conversations and understanding that it's okay not to rush the process. And that healing is a very long, long, ugly, <laughs> ugly process. Yeah. And I've been in therapy for four plus years and I'm still uncovering and dealing with things that I haven't yet. The shoulds, oh, I should be doing this. Oh, I should be feeling better. Oh, I should X, Y, Z. The shoulds will kill you. When you find yourself in that cycle, is it you just sort of take a step back and like call yourself on it? Or what do you do when sometimes you actually don't even realize you're in that cycle and you're putting all this pressure on yourself? I reach out for help. Because if I'm in a place where I'm struggling and I can't help myself, the only thing I can do is reach out for help and rely on others. And that's so scary. It's so scary. I don't like relying on other people to get my shit done and to be okay. Because it's scary to think about putting your sanity into the hands of someone else. From your diagnosis, I feel like you would also have had to mature and grow up quicker than others your age. And when, again, we previously met, you mentioned it's hard to grow up and feel like you're making further advancements from your peers, whereas they're either like staying static or they're progressing in life at a much slower rate than you are. So what's your advice to listeners that are outgrowing relationships? Oh, I mean, being in your early 20s. And there's a lot of, I mean, I'm sure being in your later 20s sucks too, but as someone who's 22 now and experiencing, (laughs) I'm 22, I'm 22, I'm experiencing a lot of adulting for the first time. I was lucky because when I went into college, I already had a lot of psychoeducation. And so there were certain things like self-care and things, but things I already was educated about. I was noticing that a lot of my peers didn't have the education or the awareness or the skills that I had taken the time to develop. And it one made me feel, oh, cool. I like have this superpower in a sense. But if you feel like you're in that place where you're struggling maybe for the first time and you don't know how to help yourself, try to advocate for yourself. The biggest thing I tell the clients I work with now and that I still try to do for myself, even though it's hard, is advocate. If I'm noticing something's not right, trust your gut. If you feel like you're not feeling right, trust your gut. Listen to yourself the first time. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's something. If you're in college, reach out to your mental health counselor. If you have good insurance, go on psychologytoday.com and look for a therapist that accepts your insurance. If neither one applies to you, reach out to the per- to whomever you trust and ask for support. Unfortunately, mental health is not something that we can do alone. I would love to say that it is, but it's not. And I have had to rely a lot on my support systems throughout the years. And while it can make me feel really guilty, I also know that they would rather me reach out to help for help than kill myself. When you were um, completing your psychology degree, you said that the thing that stood out to you most was the discrepancy between emotional intelligence, mental health knowledge among fellow students. And you actually just touched on that in the last question, which also checks out because I think every study that I've looked at has proven that Gen Zs, they suffer the most with mental health issues. So Mm -hmm. why do you think that college kids have not been equipped to handle their mental health? I couldn't cite any research, but what I can cite is just what I've noticed from my peers and myself. Mm-hmm. I really think a big part of it is the fact that the generation before us, my parents, or not before us, because there's millennials before me, but the yeah. generation Y? I think, I think generation Y. Something like that. I don't know. I could Our be wrong. Parents. My parents' generation, I think, came from another generation that didn't talk about mental health and wasn't educated on mental health. And so 
I wasn't educated on mental health until I had to be. And I think a lot of other people are in that same boat. They kind of think maybe, or maybe mental health wasn't even talked about. Mental health was never, ever talked about in my family until my diagnosis. And before my diagnosis, it was talked about in the sense of like, I remember listening to the news and it said on the news that a kid had taken his life. And my mom's response to it was, I just don't understand how someone could be that depressed that they'd want to do that to themselves. And I was like, I didn't say this, but I thought, and I was like, well, then you haven't been depressed. (laughs) I can speak for me that my lack of education came from the fact that my parents didn't talk about it and they weren't educated. And it was kind of one of those things that didn't come up until it absolutely had to. And so I'm assuming a lot of other people are in that same boat where, you know, you've heard about depression and anxiety, but maybe you don't really understand it, or maybe you don't even feel like you have a space to talk about it because of where you're living or the people in your life and what their ideas about mental health are. I know that my lack of education really was coming from the fact that like nobody in my family talked about it. And the one person who did, I didn't talk to her. (laughs) And so I, I only educated myself because I had to. And now I'm lucky that I'm educated and I'm grateful for that. And when I noticed a lot of other people in my grade struggling, I think it was because maybe they were struggling with things that they didn't even recognize to be mental health related or be causing their mental health to be poor. And it's not their fault. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like somebody hands you a bike and says, figure it out. You'll figure it out probably, but you're going to like fall a lot first. And so I think if somebody gives you a mental illness or hands you mental health struggles and they don't tell you anything and (laughs) they don't ever talk about it until that moment you're kind of this kid with a bike like fuck it really hurts to fall off this I don't like this I don't want this at all yeah definitely and so I think a lot of it just comes from the people we surround ourselves with and the environment we're in if you grow up in an environment in a culture in a family that doesn't talk about mental health and isn't educated on mental health it's not unsurprising that you won't be either and not all parents are like this, but my parents did not come from that. You know, my parents didn't talk about these things. It wasn't normal. There was a lot of secrecy around talking about mental health. And so even if mental health is talked about in your family, like it was talked about in my family, but only talked about in the sense of like, hush, hush, don't tell other people that. And so maybe the combination of being uneducated and then introducing the stigma of, oh, you don't want to tell about that you you don't want to you don't burden people with that that's not you know that's hush hush that's only for behind closed doors and when you're taught that it makes it so much harder to get help because you're taught that there's you should be ashamed of the fact that you're struggling and I had an amazing uh psychology teacher when I was in college and she was super well educated and there were times where she noticed the students in her class struggling and was like, okay, you know what, guys? We're going to go in on the balcony. We're going to look at the view. We're going to take some deep breaths. We're going to spend some time outside. That teacher was great because she was able to recognize when other people were struggling and give them what they need. And I think that when you come from a family or an environment where mental health isn't talked about and there's shame and secrecy surrounding it, it can be really helpful to have one, to meet or have one person in your life who's like, you know what? I'm going to hold space for the fact that you're feeling that way. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to accept you. And I'm not going to ask you to change. And I'm not going to ask you to explain yourself. There are a couple of students who kind of stayed out there for the rest of the class. And she was like, you know what? They're actually having a really great discussion. And I think it's more beneficial for them to be out there and have that space with each other than to be in this room. And I had so much respect for that because I was like, wow, you put their mental health over their education over their school. And that's something I really struggle struggle to do. I still don't always put my mental health above work and relationships. And the fact that there was this adult in my life Mm -hmm. who encouraged that really changed what I thought. I was like, wow, I didn't know that was okay. And I'm sure other students in the class with even less were shocked. And, you know, kids would come up and we talk in the class after and be like, oh my God, why'd she do that? Why'd she do that? And I'm like, I can't believe she did that. I'm so glad that she did that mm-hmm. because it showed you that somebody cared. And rather than telling them, okay, well, you know, you should just go do this or just feel better. 
Oh, it's transformative for me. And I can only imagine how transformative it was for other people who maybe didn't even know that was an option. Yeah. You know, I, my parents instilled a really, really great work ethic in me. And mm-hmm. I love that about myself. However, they did not instill necessarily the balance and it's not right. their fault. They didn't know. I don't, I don't think they, I don't think they struggle with their mental health in a way that's had to force them to develop a balance. We're not used to giving ourselves breaks and how you said you're type mm-hmm. A and you always want to do things perfect. Yeah. You're constantly having to remind yourself that, you know, you're not your resume. I do. The, mm-hmm. I have to do the same thing. And furthermore, you're encouraging yourself to find purpose and passion outside of your typical nine to five. One, so that you yes. can obviously honor your mental health. And two, so that you actually live a fulfilled life. Because Mm -hmm. I think we get caught in this trap of we're supposed to go to school, get a good career job, and then that's sort of like our life until we retire. We work it eight hours a day, like five days a week, sometimes more. That's not really fulfilling. It's like what we do so that we can go and do the fulfilling things, right? So easy to get caught in that cycle of I got to do this, this, and this for work. And like, I can't fall behind on this because other people are relying on me. Highlight what you're currently loving in life, how you're consistently following the I'm not my resume and finding other things to do. Something that I'm loving in life is I think for the very first time, I'm putting myself first. I've definitely put myself first in the past, but I am putting myself over other things that I wouldn't. So something that's been going on in my personal life right now is that I'm talking with my boss and talking about reducing my hours at work because I've come to a point where I've recognized that the things going on in my personal life are making my ability to do my job very, very difficult. And I care about my job and I want to do my job well, but I can't do it well while I'm in this space. And so something that I'm loving in life is the fact that I'm doing something that's really scary for me and is giving me a lot of shame and a lot of guilt because it feels so shameful to have to not work as much because you're struggling with your mental health. That sucks. And that hurts my heart. I want to be able to give my 100% all the time. But I'm starting to recognize, okay, maybe I can't. And maybe that's okay. Kudos to you. You're, it's so hard. Yeah. And the fact that you're just starting out in your 20s and you're already learning this, like that's something I'm still struggling with in my like late 20s. People, 30s and 40s and so on still struggle to like advocate for themselves, especially mm-hmm. when it's in relation to their mental health. It makes it difficult because we ourselves have a responsibility to advocate for ourselves because no mm-hmm. one else can see us struggling, right? And so that yeah. in itself is scary to do because a lot of people like we've touched on don't have the tools on how to do that. And there is so much shame surrounding that by saying, hey, like I actually need to take a step back. So Let me tell you, my ability to advocate for myself comes mostly out of fear for my life. That was really the catalyst that pushed me to the hospital when I was 17 was the fact that like, I was so afraid I was gonna kill myself and I didn't. And I knew enough to know that wasn't the outcome that I wanted. And so my fear for dying and for living my life this way was enough to force myself to get help because I am very proud of myself because I do think it was very brave, but it felt more like survivor don't. I knew the only way that I could do that was to advocate for myself. And thankfully, when you do it once, even if it sucks, you you learn how to do it. You get a little bit better at it and you get a little bit stronger. And sure. now I'm really lucky because I've gotten a chance to learn how to advocate for myself. And now I advocate for others as well. And I will say it's a lot easier to advocate for others. What I've learned a lot about mental health is that therapy can seem pretty pointless if you just look at it for session. But if you look at it as accumulation of vulnerability over a long period of time, there can be a massive growth. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to say to listeners? Well, if you have bipolar disorder and you feel like exploring it, I do have a self-help book. Um, It's called Inside My Mind and you can buy it on Amazon. And it's based off of the posts that I make on Instagram that I call my bipolar thoughts. And they are thoughts that I've had that aren't necessarily positive thoughts. Some of them are, but most of them aren't. Thoughts that I've had along my mental health journey 
and the reason that I published them into a book is because sitting with those thoughts was really helpful for me. Um, it allowed me to understand myself and where my feelings were coming from and what was triggering certain things. And the more you understand your illness, the better. Something that was really hard for me after my diagnosis was feeling as though there's nobody that understood and nobody that related. And I didn't have, I had a support system of people who would be there for me, but not a support system of people who understood. And so because that's not something that I had when I was diagnosed, I'm finally in the place where it's something I can provide for others. And so I am starting a bipolar support group in which um, people can come and you can talk about the things that you're struggling with in regards to your mental health. It doesn't have to be bipolar specific. It could just be life is really hard and it's making my symptoms bad and I don't know how to cope. Um, I have done a lot of groups in my life and there's so many things that are beneficial about it. One of them is that you learn from others. But one of the biggest things that's beneficial is that you get to learn how to be there for others. And it can feel really, really good to know that you help someone else. Like if I'm having a shit day, but I know that I was able to help somebody else, it can turn my day around. And so I am starting that. Um, if you're interested, you can send me a DM. I'm probably going to have to do it in a couple of sessions and a couple of groups because of the number of people. But if you're interested, you can please send me a DM and I will let you know um, what the stitch is. So then can you tell people where they can find and follow you online as well? Absolutely. You can find me on Instagram. My, um, what do they call them? My tag? My tag my- handles at? My handle. That's what it is. My ad. Oh, that's 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 very Gen Z. Let me try that. You can find my <laughs> at yeah. at having bipolar on Instagram. I love it. <laughs> and then, are you on any other social platforms, or is it just Instagram currently? Just Instagram. I I don't do a lot of social media because that's fair. It's very toxic, and I and I'm and I'm like addicted to doom scrolling. So the less I have, the better for me. <laughs> I feel you on that. Easy to find on Instagram, so that's perfect. Just one, one and done. One and done. <laughs>